Hello and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Kilson, Managing Editor of the Phelan U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, my colleague Mohid Malik and I spoke to Penelope Goldberg, Elihu Professor of Economics and Global Affairs and affiliate of the Economic Growth Center at Yale. She has served as Chief Economist of the World Bank Group, President of the Econometric Society, Vice President of the American Economic Association, and Editor-in-Chief of the American Economic Review. Professor Goldberg joined us in March 2023 to discuss her new book, The Unequal Effects of Globalization, which will be published by MIT Press in August 2023. Her book examines the causes and implications of the retreat from globalization. Professor Goldberg also spoke at the Phelan U.S. Center's Wanger Distinguished Lecture, Waning Globalization, on the 14th of March, 2023. So my first question is, your new book is The Unequal Effects of Globalization. Could you give us a, a quick outline of the book's main arguments and conclusions, please? Thanks. Uh, sure. So the, the book starts with um, a puzzle. Uh, the puzzle is that uh, around 2006, we started experiencing a backlash against globalization, and one might say against the capitalist system more generally. And this backlash came at the time of general prosperity. We were not in the middle of a crisis. We had, we had managed to uh, survive the financial crisis. COVID had not happened yet. So what explains this backlash? And um, the answer, to get straight to the point, is that it has a lot to do with the rise of inequality within country inequality, which people attribute it to a certain extent to globalization. Equality or inequality is, of course, a very broad concept. There are many reasons that have contributed to this rise of inequality. We have a big project, the Deaton Review Project here in London, that's interdisciplinary in nature. So it tries to bring experts from many different fields to address questions related to inequality. In the book, I'm looking at one particular aspect. So what role did globalization play in the rise of inequality in advanced countries? And so... The, the main argument is that uh, the globalization the, of, of the last two decades, the very rapid globalization that is associated with the name hyperglobalization, had a lot of positive effects on the world, especially in developing countries. Many countries managed to uh, pull themselves out of poverty, especially China or Vietnam. But at the same time, People in advanced countries, workers in advanced countries, paid a high price. And this high price came in form of disruption. People in advanced countries still benefited as consumers. Uh, We saw the prices of consumer goods uh, falling in relative terms. Uh, People have access to an incredible variety of goods at affordable prices. Uh, People are, are much more connected to the rest of the world. They can travel. They can enjoy things that... In previous generations, not even kings could enjoy. And I would argue that globalization, together with technology, with technological progress, had a lot to do with all this. But at the same time, globalization had very unequal effects, and especially unequal effects across space. So what recent research has shown is that there were people in particular communities, in particular geographic areas, that were affected by imports more than people living in other areas. And these people actually lost. They lost a lot during that time. So it's this tension that gave rise to dissatisfaction with globalization, 
and as a result to a host of other problems. So the, the spatial dimension matters a lot, and it matters because of the way our political system works, of the way elections works. So this dissatisfaction with economic outcomes ultimately translated to political changes. Brexit comes to mind. The elections in the United States is another example. And that, in turn, had uh, knock-on effects on economics. So this is roughly the outline of the, of the book. Do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic that we've recently experienced has either heightened or tempered public sentiments that might be in favor of deglobalization? So the short answer is it has definitely heightened. Actually, I'm going to talk in my lecture today, I'm going to talk more about this. It definitely heightened. It gave new arguments uh, uh, to, to those who are in favor of protection. It gave them new arguments. And the new argument was related to the resilience of global supply chains. So I'm going to argue that despite the fact that these arguments gained prominence during that time, they're actually without merit. The previous arguments regarding the unequal effects of globalization, these are actually arguments that are supported by evidence, they are supported by research. I would argue that the best way to address this unequal effects of globalization is not protectionism or nationalism. There are other policies one could adopt. But this doesn't change the fact that globalization did have distributional effects. On the other hand, when it comes to the resilience of global supply chains, I would argue that the evidence suggests that thanks to trade, the economy proved much more resilient during COVID-19 than it would have been without international trade and without globalization. So I think what the sentiment um, was misguided, in some sense it was captured by those who are in favor of protection, but it had very little to do with the facts. Is there a similar rise of skepticism towards globalization in developing countries as has been evidenced in the advanced economies of the US and throughout Europe? Uh, not necessarily. So many, so there are many developing countries that have benefited tremendously from globalization. So China, Vietnam, Korea, Malaysia. You know, in all these countries, um, there is a very strong sentiment in favor of globalization. But even in the rest of the world, so I'm thinking here of Latin America, for example, or India, when the tariff war broke out between the U.S. and China, many countries thought this is a great opportunity for them, that this was the time where they could enter the world trade system and take advantage of the void left by China. So I think this very strong skepticism against trade is more pronounced in advanced countries, and there is a good reason for that. It's... it's it's the feeling that workers in these countries have lost. They have lost to workers in less developed countries. So that's, I think that's ultimately the, the root of the problem. Um, this sentiment is not, it's obviously not shared in the rest of the world. So what would you say is the role of trade policy in the rise of globalization? And would you consider the recent trade wars that have happened between the US and China to indicate some future trends where things are going? Uh, absolutely. So I've made this point in my work before that trade policy has been very important in the rise of globalism. Um, and this is something that, that was in the past underappreciated by economists, especially by trade economists. So for a while, uh, there was this view that globalization was a phenomenon that was technologically driven because of the decline of transportation costs, the decline of, of communication costs. And therefore, it was unstoppable. It was both inevitable and unstoppable. 
So uh, the proponents of this view thought trade policy had very little to do. So trade policy was more the outcome of globalization rather than the source of it. I took issue with this view because global, the, the globalization of the past two decades had, very, had a lot to do with the emergence and the growth of global supply chains, truly global supply chains that span multiple continents. And for these global supply chains to function, you need stability, you need predictability. You need to know what tomorrow will bring. And the only way to achieve that is through trade agreements. And the multilateral trade agreements that, for example, the WTO offered. So the trading system offered this stability in the past. This changed uh, with the, the very strong rhetoric around trade around 2016, 2017, and then with the tariff war between the U.S. and China. And um, at that time, there were, there were already worries about where this was, was going to lead us. The actual tariffs were not that large. Uh, they didn't have major economic effects, but the language had changed. And uh, today we find ourselves in an even worse position where the rhetoric has escalated even further. We're in the midst of a major economic war with China. So, um, yes, I think the policy environment has changed dramatically. And this is going to change very likely the future of trade, but it's, it's also going to, to change the nature of economic cooperation between countries. And one can only hope that it it will be reversed in the near future and we won't go down this path. <laughs> Have international institutions like the, like the WTO exacerbated the unequal effects of globalization? Uh, the WTO, I would say they exacerbated them, uh, but I would say they ignored them completely uh, at the beginning. Uh, the general attitude of the WTO and trade economies more generally was distributional effects. It's not something they should worry about. So we should, we should um, as trade economists, as international trade economists, as, or as an economist working for the WTO economist, your job was to promote liberalization, to be an advocate for free trade. And then domestic policymakers could worry about complementary policies to address the adverse effects of globalization. I think this, this mindset started to change around 2018, 2019, but it was too late by then. The one case, however, where the WTO, I think, my opinion, did true damage is when it embarked in areas that were not necessarily related to trade liberalization. And the first thing that comes to mind is the TRIPS agreement, trade-related re trade intellectual property rights protection. And the general sentiment uh, among developing countries at the time was that this, is, this was an agenda that was uh, put on the table by multinationals in advanced countries. It was not advancing the interest of the citizens in advanced countries. It was hurting many developing countries, countries, for example, like India or Brazil, who had uh, uh, developed a, a certain advantage in the production of generics in pharmaceuticals. So it was an agenda that, that was uh, serving entirely the goal of increasing the profits of multinationals at the expense of developing countries. And at that time, I think the WTO started losing credibility with developing countries. And that was unfortunate because developing countries have always been, or not always, but most of the time have been uh, strongly in favor of free trade. They, they benefited tremendously in the last few decades from, from trade. 
And uh, that was a turning point in their relationship with the WTO when they realized that the WTO serves the interest of advanced countries, and not even advanced countries, of, of multinationals in advanced countries more than the interest of, of their member countries. I just want to go back to, to something you, you spoke of at the beginning when you talked about hyper-globalization. I just wondered if you could just say a few words about what hyper-globalization is, in your view, and, and some of the, the effects of that. So, uh, formally, people define hyper-globalization as a period where trade grew very fast, and what they mean by that is that the, the trade as percentage of GDP was growing during that time. So that time spans the period between 1990, I would say, to 2010, roughly speaking. So trade is growing faster than GDP. <clears throat> After that, trade keeps growing. And it's growing quite fast, but no longer, it doesn't grow as a share of GDP. So it remains steady as a share of GDP. There are also other metrics. This is the easiest way to measure the extent of hyperglobalization because it's very easy to get data on world imports. You can also use other metrics. For example, uh, you can do this uh, analysis by country or by country groups. You can look at capital flows. You can look at um, uh, migration. Um, and all these metrics during that time tell the same picture. So it's a, it's a, it's a time during which the world economy is becoming much more interconnected. We have uh, an increase in capital flows, an increase in immigration. No matter what dimension you use, you see an increase in interconnectedness. I want to talk, because we talked obviously quite a bit about globalization, hyper-globalization, but if we talk about de-globalization and what that could potentially look like, I'm, I'm curious to sort of unpack, unpack that a bit. And the reason, one reason for that is, you know, obviously when the Brexit moment happened here and when it eventually, you know, passed and the United Kingdom left the customs union, it didn't, to me, signal an idea of deglobalization because now the United Kingdom is in the position of trying to agree trade agreements on its own terms with other countries or blocks. And so, you know, to what extent do you think deglobalization as, you know, perhaps it's commonly understood is possible, how would we even begin to sort of de dis disconnect um, from, you know, economically? It was just one, just one way. So I'm going to talk about this extensively uh, tonight, but, but um, briefly here. First, let me say that my views on this topic have changed dramatically during the past year. So uh, until February 2022, so until the invasion of Ukraine, uh, my position was that, yes, trade was slowing down, and this was inevitable because it had grown so fast in the past decades, it could, this could not go on forever, and we were experiencing this backlash, so it had slowed down, but we would not see a reversal of trends. And we would not see a reversal of trends because the, the economy, the world economy had too much to lose. The firms and people were too interconnected. Uh, firms had paid huge sunk costs in other countries, and they were not going to walk away from some costs. Yes, there were trade tensions, but as you said, it was very likely that countries would reallocate their trade flows. I've done some work on this, you know, just examining how countries responded to the U.S. tariffs. And with, with uh, my co-authors, what we found is that actually what happened is 
straight the products that were targeted by tariffs grew. It, it was a quite surprising finding, but what happened is countries like Vietnam or Malaysia or Mexico, they started exporting more to the U.S. when the U.S. stopped trading with China in these products, but at the same time, they increased their exports to the rest of the world. So actually, and it's an, it's an interesting question why this happened, but, but, but there was no evidence that trade was slowing down. So I, I very much believe that despite all these tensions, and we talked about COVID-19 before, COVID-19 again was a very tough period for the world as a whole, but trade came back after, uh, after 2020. So all the indications were that the globalization was, uh, was not a real concern. There was a slowdown, a globalization, as people say, but no deglobalization. De I, I think the war in Ukraine changed that. And uh, the reason, I think, is there was... There were always, there was a fraction of the population who had been against trade, who had a much more hawkish attitude, especially towards China. You know, it was viewed as a major, as an existential threat to the United States. But, but this fraction of, of, of uh, policymakers or scholars were not influential in policy. What happened with the war in Ukraine is all of a sudden were exposed to the risk associated with geopolitics. So that was a time when the fragility of supply chains was truly exposed, but it was not fragility to a health shock like COVID. It was fragility to a geopolitical shock. In that case, to the cutting off of energy, of cheap energy to Europe. So at that point, it became clear that excessive specialization, which is... uh, a feature associated with hyperglobalization, excessive reliance on particular countries for imports of critical products could have very severe consequences for an economy. And that's the point where even reasonable people started thinking it's perhaps time to rethink globalization. So it's not that uh, economists or policymakers cared about Russia per se. Russia is very important to Europe. But I would argue it's not important to the United States for imports or the rest of the world. But by analogy, people thought what is going to happen if all of a sudden we face a similar situation with China. Let's say, let's say China invades Taiwan, and then all of a sudden we don't have access to semiconductors. So I think this unleashed a very, way, a very different way of thinking about the problem, um, where the, the focus became the resilience of supply chains, but not resilience with respect to health shocks, resilience with respect to geopolitical risks. And I think this is a valid concern. Uh, the more general concern is what happens if your imports are very concentrated. So uh, at that point, it became worth starting thinking about whether imports are concentrated or not. So um, that in turn led eventually to uh, uh, rethinking of the relationship between the United States and China, to uh, export restrictions vis-a-vis China, to the explicit statement that we need to stop the technological development of China, to the issues with dual goods, you know, goods that have both civilian and military use. And we are taking a very, we are going down a very different path in policy now, at least in the United States, um, when it comes to the relationship with China. So. I do think this is really the beginning of a new era, at least so far in policy and in in public sentiment. And 
the coming years are going to show what this means for, for trade flows and what this means for the economy. Yeah, thank you. I, I would, while you were, before you even mentioned China, my, my mind went exactly there because obviously in, I think it was in October when the national security agenda was, was revealed. Um, it was so explicitly mentioned that exports, especially for technology, was going to be restricted to China. And it was done, like you said, in the name of security um, and dual use goods. So I guess perhaps could that then be the future of a type of deglobalization? It's almost as if it's going down military security blocks. Not, and again, I don't want to use terms that are reminiscent of you know, prior decades, but it is interesting that when Trump was in office, for instance, that the trade war that he was initiating with China didn't feel as sort of um, perhaps visceral as what's now happening because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So do you think there's almost like a bipartisan sh- shift that... There is, there is certainly a bipartisan shift. I think the rhetoric is less toxic today. The rhetoric right. is very civilized, but the actions are much more uh, consequential. And, and so an, op- an optimistic uh, view is that perhaps we confine ourselves to the goods that are probably dual-use goods. It won't, it won't be the first time. It's not the first time that someone invokes a national security argument. Right. The, the protection in agriculture was often justified uh, based on national security arguments. But another, another uh, scenario, another possibility is that uh, this gets extended to every part of the economy. I think that there are many, uh, there are many uh, risks here. One is that, in principle, every good can be a dual use. A dual use good, including clothing. You know, you have good clothing. The soldiers mm-hmm. may feel more comfortable, or food, or nutrition. Um, another one is that um, I don't know to what extent people know that, but actually, the United States doesn't export much to China directly in the semiconductor industry because of the foundry model. It's mostly plants, firms located in other countries that export that engage in trade with China. However, what these other firms do, what these other plants do, is they use U.S. technology or U.S. designs to produce these products. And actually, the U.S. is the the origin of all these new technologies. So it's impossible to produce anything without relying on U.S. technology. So the newest export restrictions made it clear that if you're going to export to China, then you need to obtain an export license from the U.S. to export to China. Uh, and um, if you don't export this license, then you're going to be cut off completely from U.S. technology. So effectively, then these foundries, these plants, will not be able to produce anything because they always use U.S. technology. So (laughs) either they wouldn't have access to U.S. technology and then they wouldn't be able to do much, or at least they wouldn't be able to participate in the newest generation of chips, or they have to comply, in which case... All their trade with China has to be sanctioned by the U.S. So this, this goes beyond the U.S. and China. This um, has the potential to have ramifications for the rest of the world. And needless to say, countries uh, or plants or firms in other countries are quite uncomfortable with this. Most, most countries do not really want to have to choose between China and the United States. They would prefer a more peaceful resolution of all these tensions. I mean, because right now for the whole conversation, we've spoken about globalization almost 
only in trade terms, but of course, as you know, globalization, there's the social aspect of it too. There's a cultural aspect, you know, issues on immigration. And certainly I think sometimes that is the thing that gets framed, right? It's, it's often, that's easier as we all know to frame it in the cultural rhetoric rather than just economic terms or you link them so that your, your economic is wholly dependent on this cultural narrative. Um, do you think one side of that argument, whether it's the economic side or the cultural side is, I guess, maybe stronger than the other for those who do advocate deglobalization, whether, you know, they're, you know, from the left or the right. I mean, do, do you think there's um, a growing push to talk in, you know, the language of culture rather than just economics precisely for those, I guess, electoral reasons? Um, I think what's different, I mean, I think immigration is a first for that issue. I think it's a much, much more difficult issue to address because you're dealing with the flow of people, not the flow of goods. I think the difference, though, in my view, that of, of course, as you know, there's also backlash against free, order, free borders for people. The difference, I think, is that when it comes to immigration or these two, these cultural aspects, the, the anti-globalization views are confined to extremist parties. The people in the middle, the moderates, do not endorse, for the most part, closing the borders, keeping immigrants out, uh, uh, cutting off any cultural ties with other countries. It's only the extremes that do that. But when it comes to trade right now, there is bipartisan support. What is different about the trade environment right now, and I think that that's what signifies a new era, at least in the United States, uh, this is the majority of the population, and in politics, there is true bipartisan support for the new policies. So there, there are very few people who disagree with a new course of action. And so that, that makes it uh, very different in my view. And it's an interesting question of why this is happening. So my final question to close this out is, if we think about the, the uh, Russia war in Ukraine, notwithstanding, and the US-China notwithstanding, which are two big notwithstandings, I'll take that. Globalization, to me, doesn't seem to be going away. It will be with us in some form for the foreseeable future. How do you think we can get to a place where globalization is fair and the trade that happens within globalization is fair in such a way that inequalities aren't exacerbated? You. I think that's a, that's, a, that's a very good question. So first, um, let me say I, I agree that the glo globalization is not going away. So there's a difference between level and direction. So the, the world economy is more globalized than ever before. And this is not going to change overnight. But what we're talking about, what the, what the, what the direction is, what the derivative is. <laughs> so in that sense, we, we may experience deglobalization. So, so what we can do, I think, when it comes to within-country problems, so the, the increase of inequality within countries, the special effects I talked about before, uh, it will take complementary policies, domestic policies, to address those. This cannot be addressed through trade policy, and they cannot be addressed through interactions with other countries. Now, I realize this is much easier said than done, but this is really the big challenge. And this challenge is not confined to trade. Uh, technology poses exactly the same challenges, if not more serious challenges. So trade gives us a very good case study to study these effects, because it's easy to identify these effects. But if you think about what robots are going to do uh, in the future, of what, what uh, 
chat GPT is going to do to even skilled jobs uh, all over the world, there's going to be disruption and there's going to be displacement, and we need policies to address those. Uh, now, realizing that this is always easier said than done, I would actually be in favor of sometimes slowing down the process rather than even when it comes to trade liberalization, rather than embracing unconditional fast liberalization as in the past, perhaps sometimes it's better to slow down things a little and until we have time as policymakers and, and, and as individual, individuals and as firms to adjust. So that would be one concrete suggestion. But then there's also a different um, uh, aspect uh, of your question, namely how do we also ensure that competition across countries is fair? Um, and that's a big issue because there has been the sentiment in the past decade, in the past two decades, that competition with China in particular has been unfair. They don't play by the rules. I don't think that's actually quite true. They, they do play by the rules. It's just that the rules are not complete. They leave a lot of room for doing things that uh, some people would not consider acceptable. And as long as the other country is poor, uh, we tend to accept it. Now, what happened with China is it grows very fast. It eliminated extreme poverty. That was fine. But then it's, an, it's a way of becoming one of the most important economies in the world. Um, and, and this is where we saw you know, the, the caution coming from the United States and other countries. And so how do we ensure that this competition across countries becomes fair? I mean, still my view is that the best way to do that would be a peaceful way through negotiation rather than through punitive tariffs and through tensions that may escalate to something that gets really, really ugly. Um, and, and we have plenty of examples from the past, from history, where things got out of hand. No one wants it right now, but, but we can never be sure. And, and adopting a peaceful approach would be a much better way to do that. Um, it's also the case that we face global challenges like never before. We face climate change. We face uh, pandemics that are likely to become more frequent in the future. Uh, we, we face cancer or disease, not to mention global poverty. Global poverty is not eliminated. We face major demographic changes. There is plenty of room for cooperation among the major economies. There is no reason that we should, we should get caught in this race to the bottom. That's a great uh, note to end on uh, uh, talking about cooperation. Thanks so much for speaking to The Ballpark today. Thank you. Penelope Goldberg is a Lehu Professor of Economics and Global Affairs and affiliate of the Economic Growth Center at Yale. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks so much to Professor Penelope Goldberg for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson, Mohid Malik, and Anderson Tang. A theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, Seattle-based Gypsy Jazz Band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter.lse.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And please, tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Phelan US Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks so much for listening.